Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 212A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So first, uh, right to our feedback. The first bit of feedback comes from our episodes 190 and 191, uh, in which you interviewed Bill Ray. And the first feedback comes from Michael McFall on Facebook, who writes, very interesting two-parter. I got emotional when you described his reaction to the loss of Afghanistan. Yeah, um, obviously the way the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan was really tragic, and it was something that was moving to a lot of people, including uh, Bill Ray and me and you and lots of other folks. It was a terrible tragedy. Yep, it was, it was. Uh, JJ on YouTube writes, I'm sorry, but this guy doesn't sound credible. The Chinese experiment with the rice paper is easily reproducible, and he's still active, so why hasn't he done that? Then for his Roswell project, he was able to confirm something happened. Think about it this way. A guy brings you and a few other people and teaches you to imagine stuff for a week or two. Then he asks you about Roswell. You might not know anything about Roswell, but you've spent however long with this guy, and it's evident this is the purpose. You've signed up to do this, so you're already bought in. You don't want does not see anything, so you say whatever comes to you, meaning you actually did it. You're a remote viewer. Bill takes all the accounts from everyone, and they're all over the place. Nothing lines up, but this just means they all saw people's points of view. So Bill comes to the conclusion that something indeed happened. You can do this for any event. Well, um, so, you know, I never expect people to uh, agree with what I or a guest are saying in terms of the Chinese experiment with the rice paper. Um, this was something that Bill had heard about. But as to why he hasn't duplicated it himself, uh, well, he's he doesn't do remote viewing full time. I mean, he has he's semi retired and has a day job and he has other things to do um, in terms of. What he said uh, involving Roswell, I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that you're adequately characterizing the uh, the experience. He did train some people in remote viewing. And then as one of the practice targets, he had them look at the Roswell UFO incident. Um, but he didn't share with us a lot of the results. He was rather guarded about what he found. And so it didn't, uh, he didn't go into a lot of detail. And as a result, I don't think that we're in a position to really judge what happened there. Um, there are questions about you know, remote viewing events like Roswell, because you can't get feedback on them. And so you don't know if you're on target or off target. But uh, there's nothing in principle that would stop one from looking at any particular event, assuming remote viewing works at all. And the statistical evidence is in favor of remote viewing. As we talked in our original discussion of remote viewing, the CIA 
1995 commissioned a study with Dr. Jessica Utz, and doc, who is a statistician, later president of the American St- Statistical Association, and also the skeptic, Ray Hyman. And in their analysis of the evidence that they looked at, Dr. Jessica Utz concluded that statistically speaking, remote viewing has been as well demonstrated as anything. And Ray Hyman, the skeptic, said that there is a real anomaly in the data, that it's not easily explained. He wasn't personally convinced that it was due to psychic functioning, but he said it warranted further investigation and he could change his mind if uh, if further data uh, confirmed the same kind of anomaly. Excellent. All right. Our next feedback comes from Jim Burke on Facebook, who writes, please say you asked where the Ark of the Covenant was, but let me guess, he encrypted the location. Of course, the Ark pointed toward the fulfillment, to fulfillment, both Mary, the living Ark of the New Covenant, and the resurrection. Yeah, I didn't ask where the Ark was, and he was just a viewer working that case. It was actually uh, commissioned by someone else, and so I don't know that anybody asked what the location of the Ark was. That may not have been one of the goals of the exercise. Of course, everyone knows that's in a secret government warehouse 13. <laughs> it's being studied by top men. Top men yeah <laughs> our next our next comment comes from kevin Wynn on youtube who asks are remote viewing and astral projection the same thing and do you have any episodes on astral projection well um so remote viewing is at least the one kind of remote viewing the um extended remote viewing that that bill practices could be considered pretty similar to astral projection although it also has some differences. One of them is in astral projection, you typically lose awareness of your physical body, whereas you don't in extended remote viewing. So they're not entirely the same, but they they do look related. And uh, in the show notes, uh, I believe we had a link to an article on Paul Smith's website where Paul talks about that. So um, so if you if you I'll see if we can get a link for this as well. Uh, So check the show notes on that. Um, Astral projection is similar uh, to bilocation. And we recently had an episode on bilocation. It was episode 211. And if you want to go listen to that or watch that, you can go to mysterious.fm slash 211. And that's once again, mysterious.fm slash 211. Excellent. Patrick Peters uh, asks, could Bill Ray remote view the first century ministry of Jesus or the resurrection? Remote viewing the past seems weird slash interesting to me. Yeah, well, in principle, there is no reason why one couldn't assign any kind of a target. And I know some people have assigned Jesus as a remote viewing target and the person has been blind to what they were viewing. Sometimes they've guessed that they were being tasked to view Jesus. But I haven't seen um, I haven't seen good documented research. I mean, good documented results from those experiments. And like anything else, uh, people tend to have strong feelings about Jesus and that could interfere with the viewing process. Uh, One of the things that uh, has been suggested is that if the if people uh, and including the tasker, 
who commissions an exercise has really strong feelings about something, it may be that the viewer is picking up on those feelings instead of on the actual target. And so there's a risk of distortion and you you might not have accurate results. Okay. So uh, that's it for our feedback from episodes 190, 191. Our next feedback comes from episodes 192 and 193 on Our Lady of Cabejo. And our first feedback is some audio feedback from Patricia. Hey, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Patricia, and I just wanted to express my immense joy um, concerning the last two episodes about Our Lady of Cabejo. The moment I saw the title of the first one, I don't believe I could have clicked on the episode faster if I had tried. Uh, for context, I am a graduate of Franciscan University, class of 2018, with my BA in theater, concentration in performance. And of the many classes that are required for theater majors, we have two called Theater Literature 1 and Theater Literature 2. And in Theater Lit 2, as we shortened it to be, um, we had to read a play among many plays, one of which was called Our Lady of Cabejo. Such a good time and I miss it a lot, um, um, all the time. But also get way more detail in the real life story. I mean, obviously the play was based off of it, but it was just a wonderful um flashback for me but also as a devout catholic being able to get the full story and as always the way you guys do get a full perspective of the pros and cons but also leaving it up to viewer discretion to make up their own mind um so that's always very helpful but again thank you guys so much for your show i only found y'all recently um because of uh jimmy you doing some interviews i think like it was like pints of a quiet with aquinas and maybe a couple other people i can't remember um, and I was like, who is this Jimmy guy? And then I found you and Dom and it's been great. So keep up the amazing work um, and all the crazy topics um, and God bless y'all. Well, thank you, Patricia. Glad you enjoyed the Our Lady of Cabejo episodes and hope you enjoy other episodes of the show going forward. Excellent. And also love to hear from another Stubby grad. I'm also a Stubby alum. So uh, great to hear from you, Patricia. Our next feedback comes from patron John Henry, who sent it in via Patreon and says uh, this series has been the hardest to listen to so far because of the subject matter, not because of any failure on the part of the hosts or voice actors. Thanks for handling it so thoughtfully and gently. Very good episodes, even if they pain my heart. Thank you. Yes, uh, the Rwandan genocide is really hard to hear about, and uh, that's something that other people commented on as well. So we'll be hearing a bit more about that. And our next feedback comes from Nicholas Jagno, John Yo. Uh, it's it's a, like a French or Cajun name, and I, I'm going to butcher it for you. Sorry, Nicholas. But he wrote on Facebook saying, I'm sorry to hear that Immaculate Ilibagiza decided to downplay the bishop's judgment of the other messages. But I highly recommend her book, Left to Tell, that recounts her personal experience of the genocide. It is an incredibly moving story, both in its description of man's inhumanity and of God's grace. It brought me to tears. Thank you, Nicholas. And, uh, you know, just exercise critical thinking. But uh, if people want to check out her memoir of the events, it's definitely out there and something that many people have found very moving. Our next feedback comes from Anthony Fisher on Facebook, who writes, you mentioned that Our Lady of Cabejo was the only 
African Marian apparition, which has been approved by the Catholic Church. How does the Catholic Church view apparitions which are purported to have occurred in other churches in Africa, like the apparitions of Mary at Zaytun in the Coptic Church, or on a semi-related tangent, the purported Marian miracle apparition in Yankalilia, Australia, in an Anglican church? Does the Catholic Church have a teaching on miracles or apparitions happening outside of the bounds of the Catholic Church? Uh, the church doesn't have a teaching on this, but it's something that is in the realm of theological opinion. And the opinion that I would advocate is that God loves everybody. And so miracles are not uniquely confined to the Catholic Church. Uh, if, you know, someone is in another sect of Christianity or even another religion, and let's say they're sick, um, God can have mercy on them and heal them. And so we shouldn't expect miracles to be exclusively associated with the Catholic faith. As a result, I'm open on Zytune, and I've got it on the list for future episodes, um, you know, assuming I can find enough good resources about it. I'm not uh, familiar with the with the one you mentioned in uh, Yankalilla, Australia, but if there are good sources on that, that could potentially go on the show as well one day. Excellent. Kevin Greenlee writes on Facebook, this isn't really reason or theology, but on a personal level, one of the things that I find hard with revelations like this is the emotivism. I don't expect Mary to be a stoic, but all the wild emotional elements, especially her being inconsolably sad, just make me deeply uncomfortable. They come across to me as emotionally manipulative. Yeah, well, I think that part of part of the reason for that is the people that Mary is uh, communicating with. Uh, very frequently, they're younger people, and younger people tend to have very strong emotions. Also, they are people of another culture, and some cultures are more expressive than others. And so, I would say that part of the um, part of the way Mary comes across in apparitions or other saints is going to be culturally conditioned based on the people that they're trying to reach and the people who are interpreting this experience they've had. And so, you know, someone coming from someone who's older and coming from a more reserved culture may feel a, a little uncomfortable with the way that uh emotions are expressed and so forth. Although, frankly, if you read the Old Testament prophets, they get pretty emotional. And so um, so it's not something that's just unique to apparitions today. Michael B. writes on Facebook, a warning of unspecified disaster at an unspecified time is as useful as if I were to say tomorrow something will happen. Stuff happens all the time. Meaningless, vague predictions are not predictions at all. They are useless and deceitful. In effect, the supposed apparition is saying something will happen somewhere sometime. The vagueness of this contrasts very unfavorably with the clarity and specificity of the biblical prophets. Such vagueness is an indication that the reported words are not from God and that the alleged apparition is not from God either. Well, the church certainly doesn't require one to uh, believe in Cabejo or any, any other Marian apparition. Um, I don't know that the case for Cabejo was based exclusively on the prediction of the genocide. So even if one set that aside, there were other phenomena that were going on that um, 
were supportive of the idea that something supernatural was happening in this case. You can go back and listen to the episodes for examples of that. In terms of how does this compare with biblical uh, predictions, I don't know that it compares unfavorably. Uh, you 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 do find biblical prophets making predictions of things without dates, and sometimes you will get dates. Sometimes you'll have a, a kind of a sundown clause on this is going to happen before this time, but other times you don't. And so I don't know that I would judge uh, the genocide prediction to be um, to be substantially different from the predictions in some Old Testament prophets in terms of its specificity. Holly Vargo sent an email and wrote, I've been listening to your episodes and I cannot find the answers I'm seeking. Does the church ever approve ongoing alleged locutions or does the church wait until the locutions have ceased before assessing them and determining their validity? My friend believes very firmly in the alleged locutions received by Anne the lay apostle. Anne claims to hear directly from God and the saints. My friend claims that Anne's locutions have received approval from the church, which made me question if the church would categorically approve an ongoing phenomenon. What if today's locution is orthodox, but tomorrow's locution is heterodox? The church would then be in the position of having approved something that later became heterodox. Have you ever heard of this woman, and have you ever investigated her claims? How can I determine if she is legit or a fraud? Well, I have heard of Anne, a lay apostle, and I can provide you with a little bit more information. Um, to answer your question, what the church does uh, with regard to a reported apparition varies depending on the case. If the apparitions or locutions are clearly contrary to the Catholic faith, then they don't wait. They'll just they'll just announce this is not this is not genuinely supernatural. This is not from God. This is something else. Um, so they if there are warning reasons, then they will definitely act in the middle of something going on. On the other hand, if it seems orthodox, then they tend to sit back and wait and they frequently will wait until it plays itself out and make a judgment after that time. But um, they don't have to. It is possible for them to approve something or a segment of things that occur in a sequence that is still ongoing, but they tend not to. They tend to wait and let it play itself out. In terms of Anne Alley Apostle, the, uh, we'll have links to a couple of letters that were written by her bishop. The first letter comes from 2006, and in it, um, the bishop is supportive and indicates that, uh, that she has permission to publish but he does not endorse it as supernatural. And as commonly happens on the apparitions rumor net, if a bishop says anything positive, that gets turned into full approval. And it wasn't full approval. So in 2011, the bishop came out and reiterated that, yes, he's given her permission to publish, but that doesn't mean he has approved her apparitions as genuinely supernatural. Okay. Our next feedback comes from Tim Lucchese via email. He says, hey, Dom and Jimmy, just wanted to share this with you. This morning, my five-year-old daughter, who loves all things Marion, asked, what's Jimmy talking about? When I told her Our Lady of Cabejo, her face lit up. She then ran to get a baby doll in her Mary costume. And when she came back, she excitedly showed me this. And I'll add it to the live stream. Thanks and for all we'll, you do. 
and we'll have a picture of it in the video uh, version of this. Um, but basically, for those who are listening on audio, it is a, uh, a precious little baby doll in a uh, white robe with a blue mantle. It's very cute. Very cute. Our next feedback comes from Peter Neville via email, who writes, I just listened to Cabejo Part 2. Good job. Here's an important data point. Following the genocide, the Tutsis formed a new government, and the millions of Hutus fled to East Zaire. Tutsi Rwanda and Uganda basically invaded Zaire to get at the Hutus and the valuable mines. Long and very messy story short, this all led to the first and second Congo civil wars that killed some four to six million people. The second civil war is sometimes called the Third World War or Africa's World War because lots of African nations got pulled into it. Double-check my facts, but the blood didn't end with the Rwandan genocide. By the way, I worked in this region in the late 80s, in part with the Mozambican refugees in Zambia. Absolutely hideous. Mass dismemberment and, per the Zambians, harvesting of soft body parts from women and children for witchcraft, terrorizing, etc. I could still, I could tell stories. Ah. Thank you for sharing your experiences, Peter. Um, it's uh, it can be a very rough part of the world, and some very rough things have gone on there. And so, um, sorry you had to witness the things you did. Our next comment comes from Father Mark Goring on YouTube, who writes, "Thank you for talking about Our Lady of Cabejo. The whole world needs to know about these apparitions." Thank you, Father Mark, and glad you enjoyed the show. Uh, Andy Fischerter on YouTube writes, I'm becoming more and more convinced that Jimmy is a Time Lord. Just to have the time to research all of these topics is amazing. Jimmy and Dom, keep up the excellent work and God bless. Thank you, Andy. And as to the Time Lord rumor, I'm afraid I have to give what's known as the Glomar response. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> That's a confirmation. And our next feedback. It's not It's not a confirmation <laughs> or a denial. <laughs> Sometime I'll have to tell the story of the Glomar response and why it's called that. That would be a very fun anecdote. Our next uh, bit, a bunch of feedback comes from episode 194 on Stephen Greer. And the first one comes from Jason Thayer, who wrote on Facebook, I like how you're helping us to spot frauds like this guy. You're doing good work at helping us to understand how to stay away from crackpots in a calm and rational manner. Thank you, Jason. Uh, you know, the exercise of critical thinking is one of the things we try to model on this show. And that means looking that it means sorting the wheat from the chaff. As uh, St. Paul said, we need to test everything and hold fast to what is good. And sometimes what we encounter is not good. And that includes Stephen Greer. The evidence uh, in his case supports the idea that he is a hoaxer and that he is swindling people out of money. He's not the only hoaxer that we've talked about on the show, and we have some other uh, hoaxers coming up as well that we will talk about, in addition to people who are sincere and who may have something very strange going on. Uh, our next feedback comes from Chris Madden via email, who writes, Thanks for your recent episode on Dr. Stephen Greer. I'm left wondering whether Dr. Greer falls under Jacques Vallée's warnings in Messengers of Deception, or if Dr. Greer read the book and thought it had some great ideas for his life plan. Well, I don't know if Stephen Greer has read Messengers of Deception by Jacques Vallée, um, but, uh, but I would certainly myself put Stephen Greer in a category of, of being a messenger of deception. And our feedback now comes from episode 195 on poltergeists. 
Uh, the first feedback comes from a patron, Rob L., who's also our feedback coordinator. So you, if you're a feedback coordinator, you, you get to add your own feedback. And thank you, Rob L., for, uh, for doing the feedback coordination. It's a huge help. Oh, it's made all the difference. So his feedback is, growing up, I witnessed a black mist and white mist within my house. Sometimes I swear I saw them almost fighting each other. At one point, I watched the white mist rush at me from another room just to dissipate at my bedroom doorway. Also had strange events like sinks turning on by themselves on more than one occasion. After years of this, my brother, dad, and I were watching Ghost Hunters and talking about our own experiences and found out that each of us had experienced these mists within our house. My brother even mentioned how he woke up to the white mist over him like a blanket and feeling like he was being choked and couldn't breathe. It's interesting to note that once my brother was out of the house, most of the appearances stopped, but my brother had strange activity where he began living. I wonder if something could have been attached to him, or it was some manifestation of himself. Maybe a poltergeist is a real-life obscurus? So I hadn't been aware of what an obscurus was, but I looked it up, and that's a Harry Potter thing. I have to say, I've only read the first of the Harry Potter books, so my knowledge of them is pretty pretty thin. Um, but in terms of could it have been a poltergeist or something else, it could have been. Um, one would have to do a, um, a paranormal investigation to sort that out and look for other possible uh, causes. But at least on the surface, it does sound like poltergeist activity. And it does in general terms fit with the, oh, and the mists is a little unusual, but not, uh, I wouldn't rule it out on that, on the, on those grounds, but it does fit the overall pattern of poltergeist activity tending to center on a, a person, especially a young person. And so it, it could have been. Uh, Cora Newberger writes on Facebook, what about smell? Can a poltergeist be present in the form of scent? My hubby and I were watching TV one night and suddenly we smelled candy. Well, um, as far as I'm aware, yes, poltergeists could present in the form of smells. There have been um, my, if memory serves, yes, there are cases historically where uh, poltergeists have generated an odor. I don't recall candy being reported, but uh, it, it would be possible. However, in any situation like this, one needs to look at possible natural explanations first. There could be some natural reason why you smelled candy while watching television, um, even the two of you together. There may have been something generating that odor that was perfectly normal in the house or that went by the house and some of the air got in. Our next uh, comment comes from Brianna O'Connell on YouTube, who asks, what is the church's teachings as far as paranormal investigations go? Is it wrong to partake in one or even watch one on a television show? Well, the church doesn't have teachings on paranormal investigations. Uh, it does actually have paranormal investigations, though. Uh, whenever an apparition occurs, um, of a saint. Uh, the church has an investigative process for that, and that's a paranormal investigation. Whenever a uh, demonic manifestation occurs and an exorcism needs to be done, there's a paranormal investigation that has to precede the exorcism. And when a miracle is reported, uh, like through a saint's intercession, that has to be investigated too, and that's a paranormal investigation. So um, the church actually does paranormal investigations. It doesn't have a codified set of teachings, but in principle, everything, I mean, all truth is God's truth, and there's nothing wrong with investigating what's going on in the world to understand what the truth is. So there's nothing in principle 
wrong with uh, partaking in a paranormal investigation or watching one like in a documentary or on a TV show. One wants to make sure that it's conducted in a way that's consistent with the faith. And uh, and that's not always the case. Uh, One also wants to uh, make sure it's a quality investigation. And a lot of the ones you see like on ghost hunting shows are not. Um, but there's nothing wrong in principle with, uh, investigating the paranormal or watching accounts or reading accounts of paranormal investigations. In fact, the church does them herself. All right. Uh, Kristen H writes on YouTube. Oh, wow. I've always listened via podcast. I didn't realize that when you said you would have video that it would include things like Venn diagrams. Yes, that's one of the things we try to do on the video version of the show is um, use the video to add um, educational value so that we can add at times we'll add Venn diagrams or lists or write out words uh, visually so that you can read them um, in addition to just hearing them. And so we try to use the video medium to reinforce the learning that's going on via audio. Our next feedback comes from our episode 196 on patron questions. And the first one comes from patron Colin Mount, who wrote terrific video. And as always, Jimmy's ability to speak directly to an issue rather than around one is refreshing. I do have to say there may be an area of disagreement, as Jimmy said that it is a valid interpretation that the creation that awaits redemption is human creation. His points are valid, however. I don't think we need believe that creation needs to be fallen in order to anticipate and seek the day of redemption. Might not the cosmos, universe, and even the various plant and animal life, even unconsciously or without conscience at all, await the day of our redemption since the dissonance of sin and moral evil are gone? Well, um, one could certainly look at it that way. I don't know that that's what Paul, the biblical author who talks about creation waiting for the re- the revelation of the sons of God, I don't know that that's what Paul's thinking of, but it's certainly a possibility. And you know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't rule it out on that ground. Justin Michael writes on Facebook. I imagine you could baptize Tom Servo, but I'm pretty sure Crow would not be able to receive baptism validly due to his inability to take the whole process seriously and thereby be a willing participant above the age of reason. Well, that presupposes that Crow is above the age of reason to begin with, and I don't know that that's the case. He might count as an infant. That's right. (laughs) All right, uh, this feedback will be coming from episodes 197 and 198, uh, Jimmy's interviews with Dr. Edwin May. And the first one comes from patron Rob Leonardi, who writes, I wonder, as someone with aphantasia, if Dr. May's research, he says, is upcoming, is going to see more aphantasiacs, I would love to be part of some research, especially to reconcile my aphantasia with which I have, with what I have perceived in my own life as possibly precognitive abilities. I find this stuff is interesting, but I appreciate interviews like this being two-hour episodes like 177 instead of breaking it up like this. But I know Jimmy's a busy man. Yeah, um, I between my own need to, you know, have topics for the show, it if I have an interview that goes long, it it is I, I think it's on balance the right decision to break it into parts if that's reasonable in a given case. Uh, there may be particular stories that it's not reasonable for, but if it can be broken into two, I think it's helpful because, uh, number one, it helps me in that there's one less, you know, week I have to write a script for. 
Um, and that's itself a very time consuming research intensive thing. But also, I think it's better for the listeners because there are fewer there are more people who are willing to listen to a one hour show than there are people who are willing to listen to a two hour show. And so I think it improves the show's reach to the extent I can keep episodes under that um, under that two hour mark. Um, in terms of Dr. May's research, I haven't heard a lot about what's going on in that regard now, but uh, if I do, I'll report back. Excellent. Uh, next feedback is also from a patron, James Carfagno, who writes, I'm not a huge fan of these episodes with Dr. May. Yeah, some of the stuff is kind of interesting, and I see the value of Jimmy collecting this oral history and analysis of Stargate, but I feel a little disappointed compared to the traditional episodes where Jimmy and Dom break down a new mystery with the faith and reason perspectives. I understand that. I appreciate it. Um, it's not every episode is going to be a favorite for everybody. And um, I'm just doing the best I can. I use things that I find interesting as uh, the basis for the show. And then I research them and present them. And even if not, even if a particular subject isn't one's favorite, um, you know, I appreciate people listening and I uh, do think consciously about the mix of topics. Um, we, We'll continue to have uh, interview shows like that occasionally, but it's not something we're going to have every week. Callie Paxton writes on Patreon, I love hearing all your episodes on remote viewing. It's an incredible treat to hear from a professional researcher on the topic. Thank you, Callie. And, um, you know, when we've done it, we've done a number of remote viewing episodes now. And whenever we do that, we tend to hear from people who say, eh, not my favorite. And then other people who say, oh, I totally love this. So it's I'm, I'm trying to do my best to uh, have something for everybody. Paul Lathrop writes on Patreon. Hi, Jimmy. Can you help me understand where tarot and divination are clearly sinful? in the catechism, and as I've heard you talk about on Catholic Answers, versus the weak sense of psychic and remote viewing. What's the difference, and how does one avoid sin? Thanks. So I believe we talked about this uh, to some extent in episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. If not there, we we, I, we talked about it some in uh, episodes 105 and 106 on Aquinas and the Occult. You can get to those by going to mysterious.fm slash 79 for episode 79. You can also go to mysterious.fm slash 105 for episode 105 and mysterious.fm slash 106 for episode 106. But to um, to recap a little bit here, here's what paragraph uh, 2116 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. It says, all forms of divination are to be rejected. And then it's going to name some for us. And particularly, it names three. Recourse to Satan or demons. That's the first. Conjuring up the dead, that's the second, or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. And so those are the three basic categories of divination, uh, attempting to learn about hidden matters, including the future. Um, if it if it involves recourse to Satan or demons, it's rejected. If it involves conjuring up the dead, it's rejected. Or if other pra if it involves another practice that is falsely supposed to unveil the future. And then it goes on to list some examples like consulting horoscopes and astrology and palm reading and so forth. Um, and 
those uh, that's where tarot would fit. Tarot cards are not mentioned in the catechism, but that's where they would go. It would it would be in this other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. Um, but that is not the same thing as if God really built uh, an ability um, into human nature that would allow us to have some knowledge of the future or other matters. If that's the case, then the practice does not falsely unveil the future. It might be more or less reliable, just like a weather forecast or a stock forecast is more or less reliable, but it wouldn't simply be baseless. And in that case, it would be in principle legitimate to use because God didn't build things into human nature that we're forbidden to use. There's always, if he put a faculty in us, there's always some context in which it's reasonable to use that faculty. And so um, so I think that for our purposes, the distinction is, does something, if something involves a psychic functioning, it's not divination. It's, it's part of human nature if psychic functioning is real. On the other hand, if psychic functioning is not real, then it would falsely unveil the future and it would be something to, to avoid. Paul DeHaunt on Facebook writes, after listening to episode one and most of this episode, I land decisively on the side of, nah, this isn't a real thing. I don't have any prejudice against any of it. I just think the evidence provided is weak or non-existent. He also discussed a certain experiment that gave five sigma level of confidence in their results. Now, I'm certainly not a statistician and I could be wrong, but five sigma is the level of certainty we get from the LHC. Having five sigma confidence in his results would be a slam dunk and he'd win the Nobel Prize. How come I can't find the paper? These don't disprove him, but it definitely raises my Mr. Spock eyebrow. I'm normally a fairly skeptical person, and Jimmy's taught me to temper that a bit. Thanks, Jimmy. But everything Dr. May speaks to screams as simply statistical blips, improper stats, and or the confluence of cognitive biases. Well, um, so I, I I don't know why you haven't been able to find the paper. It could be that you haven't looked in one of the very expensive uh, books on his author page because he has published his um, his research findings. And being that they are or since they are rather niche, they're published in rather expensive formats, but he has published. And if you want to find the paper or whatever paper uh, he was referring to, the place I would check is his author page on Amazon, which we had a link to. And it had a, it had a couple of volumes of his papers that are available there for reading. Also, just because something has five sigma confidence level doesn't mean that it's going to win a Nobel Prize. You have to... There, in. Number one, there is no Nobel Prize in parapsychology, so the category doesn't exist. Um, but uh, there are arguments that uh, statisticians have made for psychic functioning having uh, five sigma or even higher levels of confidence. But you got to do the research, and if you if I'm not saying you're doing this, Paul, but if one just sits and never looks at the research and says, "Why don't I know about this?" then one really hasn't engaged with the subject and uh and indeed one should not be so dismissive until one has actually looked at the data. James Hamill writes on Facebook, "I've heard of the pineal gland as the third eye and how 
calcification is the enemy of the sixth sense. Have you or Dr. May done any research on this? I have not. Um, I'm not sure how calcification is being used in this concept because that could mean a calcium buildup or it could mean a lack of use or it could mean doing the same thing all the time. So I'm not sure what that would mean in this context. I have heard about the pineal gland in our head being our third eye. I'm very skeptical of that. Um, That comes out of an Eastern tradition trying to map uh, particular things onto the body in a way that doesn't seem to correspond with medical evidence. Um, I'm So I'm not aware of any research that Dr. May has done, but personally, I'm quite skeptical of that. Martin B. writes via email, Dear D- Jimmy and Dom, first of all, I would like to thank you very much for your high quality, in-depth discussion with Dr. May. Since the conversation dwelled on the consciousness, materialist versus dualist understandings debate, I would be interested in your interpretation of the observations on patients having undergone split brain surgery, a radical treatment for epilepsy. It seems that while each brain's side has clearly specific tasks that it cannot communicate to the other side for people having undergone such surgery, ideas, i.e. abstract concepts transmitted from the outside of the body to a single side of the brain, seem to instantaneously be communicated to the other side of the brain. although physiologically, there are no longer any neurons communicating between both sides. It's as, it is as though concepts, in other words, the mind, were indivisible and transcended the mere physiological aspects of human brains. At least that's my understanding of these observations. I assume you must have heard about these studies and have been able to forge your own opinion about them. Do you consider these observations strong evidence of the dualist view of consciousness and are there plausible counterarguments from materialists that you're aware of? So I am aware of uh, split brain studies, and I haven't looked into them a huge amount. Um, I, I I know that they can be argued both ways. Um, without going into all that, uh, in terms of, well, if I was a materialist, if I wanted to deny the dualistic understanding of the of mind-brain interaction, how would I do that in this situation? Well, um, I would say, okay, even when you have someone who's had their corpus callosum, which is the connective tissue between the two hemispheres of the brain, if you've had someone who's had that severed, that may separate the two hemispheres enough that um, that it cuts down on epilepsy, but it but they're still physically attached. I mean, even if it's not even if you're not transmitting information via the corpus callosum, you are going to be attached. You're going to have the two hemispheres attached through uh, the cerebellum and um, uh, and and there may be additional nerve fibers uh, even in the midbrain. Um, craft that are in the midbrain cleft that uh, are still transmitting even if the corpus callosum has been severed. So I would, I, if I was a materialist and wanting to argue against the kind of scenario that um, that you're appealing to, that's the kind of thing I would point to. I would say, well, look, you may have partially severed um, the connection between the two hemispheres, but you haven't totally severed it, or at least you haven't shown that it's been totally severed. And so that's what I would appeal to. William Guertin sends an email. Jimmy mentioned offhand the out-of-body death experiences. 
Could these, these, sorry, these have been used in apologetics to argue for evidence for the existence of the soul. Could this now be not an indicator of a spiritual existence to say that the real explanation isn't the soul's awareness while being separated from the body, but in actuality, some sort of remote viewing experience? Ultimately, investigation could be done to potentially prove that there is no brain function during this time, thus unlikely that there are any physical phenomena that could explain it. But again, there would be many difficulties. So this uh, gets to a problem in parapsychology, which is um, how do you know exactly what's going on? You can take reports of phenomena like out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences and say, okay, well, on the surface, they look like they are providing evidence for um for dualism for the for the mind being distinct from the body but if you if you think about it carefully well there are other possibilities um in the case for example of a near death experience maybe um maybe it occurs just before or just after cessation of brain function and it, you know, it it may involve something like remote viewing or, a, you know, some kind of psychic ability to sense outside of the body. And it's it's very difficult to untangle what's called the super psi hypothesis from surface appearances. The super psi hypothesis is basically that uh, people are using psychic functioning all the time without really realizing it. And that makes it very hard to distinguish from ordinary phenomena. And so if it were true that uh, people are using psychic ability all the time, then we wouldn't be able to necessarily take some phenomena as they present themselves. So instead of being um, a genuinely out-of-body experience where your soul or something leaves the body, which properly speaking ought to kill your body if you have only one soul and if it left, um, then uh, then you it, it may not actually be out-of-body at all. It may just be a shift of attention or awareness. And I have seen uh, Catholic theologians discussing um, out-of-body experiences who have proposed that that's essentially what they are. The soul, which doesn't really have a location of its own, is ordinarily manifesting through the body. And so we say it's in the body, even though the soul really doesn't have a spatial location. But because of that, it can shift its attention elsewhere outside of the body, generating the appearance of an out-of-body perspective without implying um, that there's physically something that goes to the remote site, although it also could be something that physically goes to the remote site. There's just a lot of um, there's a lot of uncertainty here. There's a lot of research that could be done, but getting money for it is one of the problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems to be a common problem these days. Uh Tony More L. so in parapsychology than other yeah, areas. <laughs> I can imagine, yes. Uh, Tony L. writes on YouTube, more interesting than I expected, though I should have known better. Stranger Things seems a lot cooler knowing the real history of psychic spying during the Cold War. Now I know the character Eleven is doing Gansfeld in the show. Yeah, I, I saw uh, Stranger Things season one. Um, I haven't seen it recently, but uh, I'll take your word that Eleven's been doing Gansfeld. 
I've been watching season four of Stranger Things and <laughs> then thinking about remote viewing and all this. And it actually mm-hmm. adds to the enjoyment of the show. So uh, if you if you w- want to watch Stranger Things, you're a fan. Uh, listen to and watch the remote viewing episodes if you haven't yet, because it, it really adds to it. All right. So that's enough on those episodes. Our next feedback comes from episode 199, where we talked about inflation. And our first bit of audio feedback comes from Jason. Hey, Jimmy, I'm coming to you from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I always love that little connection to your hometown. I appreciated the episode about inflation. I've definitely noticed your comments about government caused inflation in episodes before. We got a question and a comment. I wanted to see your take on how the rise of cryptocurrency, credit cards, e-commerce, Venmo, and our continued push toward a cashless society will impact inflation and deflation in that system. And then my comment was you talked about how the the Weimar Republic used its paper money for notes and so on. I kept waiting for you to go to the, the question of what they use for toilet paper, and I was surprised you didn't make it there. Oh, well, maybe next time. Thanks. Well, this is a family show, so we don't explore all possible uses of money during the Weimar Republic. Um, in terms of uh, your question, uh, I don't know that I, I don't know that a shift to a cashless economy of itself implies anything about the rate of inflation. Um, I mean, we we are largely cashless anyway. I mean, we tend to use credit cards and checks and things like that. Um, So maybe there would be some increase in the velocity of money as a result of of cashless interactions. But um, I don't think it would have a fundamental effect on uh, on inflation. I think inflation really is too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. All right. And our next bit of audio feedback comes from Elliot. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Elliot, and I want to comment on the recent mysterious world about inflation. Um, I, I just had a question for Jimmy about um, uh, he didn't uh, he didn't mention anything about the gold standard and how it ties to inflation and more specifically about uh, President Nixon and the Nixon shock and, and that uh, policy and how it relates to uh, combat, combating inflation at the time, but in reality, it, from what I read, it actually caused the stagflation of the 1970s. Just wondering if Jimmy could uh, comment a little bit more on uh, the gold standard and uh, uh, Nixon's policy when it comes to foreign uh, monetary uh, supply. Thanks. Love the show. Bye-bye. Well, I haven't uh, studied in depth what um – you know the intervention that that uh, occurred during the Nixon administration, um, and I try not to comment much on things I haven't studied in depth. I I try to actually not follow the advice in Steve Martin's grandmother's song, which was criticize things you don't know about. Um, I try to avoid doing that for the most part. Um, so I don't know that I that I could comment in in specific here um my sense is that stagflation in the 1970s which we're now it looks like we may have a second dose of that um was caused not simply by one thing but by uh, a collection of policies some of which were in, were um 
during were implemented during the Nixon administration, some of which had been implemented before the Nixon administration and some of which had been implemented after the Nixon administration that both promoted uh, inflation and uh, caused a uh, caused a decline in uh, growth. That was the stagnation. That's the stag part of stagflation. And it was multifactorial. In other words, there were a bunch of different things that were happening that led to it. But that's something I'd have to research further. Our next bit of audio feedback comes from Tom. Hey, Jimmy and Dom. I listened to the inflation episode. You had a bunch of great information, including the fact that the government is ultimately responsible for inflation. However, I think many listeners are going to come away with the impression that the government prints all the money that causes inflation and is the cause in this way. But I don't think that's the case. As you know, we have a fractional reserve lending system, and historically, the majority of currency has been privately created through the issuance of loans. I would suggest that you clarify this a bit for the listeners, drop in a little information about interbank trading rates, interest on reserves, and intervention in the repo and reverse uh, repo market to tie it up in a nice monetary bow. Thanks for all the work you do. God bless. Well, I, I I can't really comment on all those subjects, um, so I'm afraid I can't tie it up in a nice monetary bow. But I we did mention that in the episode because I, you know I'm aware of our banking system. Um, we did mention that it's not the government that uh, that does all the money printing, but the government is responsible for all the money printing because it's the it's what's authorized the banks to undertake the kinds of efforts that they're making and so the government is ultimately in control of the size of the money supply and i i recognize that um they have sort of farmed out part of this um partly on the grounds that you know the money experts will do it better maybe but also partly on the ground of denying their own responsibility, because if there's one thing if there's one thing politicians love to do, it's deny responsibility for things. And so um, so that's part of what's been going on in the episode. I wanted to because and it was a long episode to begin with. But in the episode, I wanted to concentrate just on the one subject. Uh, of inflation, which is why I didn't go into things like the gold standard or uh, fractional reserve banking or things like that. I wanted to make it clear to the listener the relationship between the government's ultimate control of the money supply and um, how that is the fundamental driver of inflation. Our next feedback comes from Ethan, who writes, I'm a Canadian economics student who's done some undergrad research on productivity shocks, and the real economy. I really enjoyed your episode on inflation, particularly your discussion on loss aversion. There's a big case to be made for consistent levels of low inflation. All inflation increases spending. Empirically, though, in contrast to higher levels of inflation, low levels increase output and the demand for employment. From what I gather through the best reason to support from what, let me try that again. From what I gather, though, the best reason to support consistent low inflation is to provide a buffer between us and deflation. Economists would choose healthy inflation over deflation any day. Monetary policy doesn't have any way to stop deflation, and everyone in economics is terrified of being stuck in the deflationary trap where debt is insurmountable and spending plummets into the ground. Even scarier is that empirically, 
monetary policy is inexplicably becoming less effective at creating inflation, making it seem like we're being slowly sucked into a deflationary pool of quicksand. That's the kind of Great Depression nightmare that keeps us up at night. I love this episode, and I'm really thankful I got a chance to think about econ through my absolute favorite podcast. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. Um, and as I said on the show, I don't at present have strong opinions uh, about um about whether or not a low level of inflation is net beneficial. But my suspicion is that the ideal is no inflation, no deflation, just keeping things steady. All right. And then our next feedback comes from Sean Moore, uh, who wrote on Facebook. This was a very good episode. It used easy to understand examples. I kept thinking to myself at the beginning, when is he going to get to the Weimar, Weimar Republic? And bam, he got to it. About the only simple statement Jimmy didn't make, and he was close, was inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. And he got pretty close. Finally, and I and I used and I used it in this episode. <laughs> That's right. And finally, he didn't take the obvious cheap shot at all the money that got pumped into an economy short of goods over the last two years in the name of COVID relief. Yeah, I always try to uh, to be uh, neutral and nonpartisan in presentation of these things. But um, but yeah, uh, during covid, both of the administrations during the covid period had pumped a lot of money into the economy that raised warnings about inflation. And guess what? We're now having inflation. Kathy Sehu on Facebook writes, kind of in it's always the government episode. Really, as Jimmy says, we have met the enemy and he is us. He rightly emphasizes the need for voters to do our job, become educated and informed. But an even worse enemy in that regard is the educational system at all levels down to the school boards. And our college kids are being taught everything other than math and economics. We really need serious education reform, especially on the state and local levels. If we're going to vote in good politicians, we get the we get the government we deserve. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, that's part of why I wanted to do the episode was to uh, help people have a background in inflation so that they would be able to cut through some of the lies and spin that our politicians get up to. Um, incidentally, you mentioned education, and there's a question that some people have about, you know, like, why is education, why are educational institutions like universities, why are they so left wing? Why are they so disconnected? with um, the values that prevail outside of academia. And I recently ran across a video by Thomas Sowell on just that question. So we'll have a link to that in case you're interested in checking it out. All right. And then our next feedback comes from Daniel O'Hara, who writes on Facebook. I don't think it matters who you vote for because politicians can promise you the world. And once they get into office, they're controlled by big business and lobbying. America voting in politicians only give the illusion of democracy when in actual fact, it is a plutocracy. Well, um, I, I, I recognize that there is an element of truth there, but I don't think it's absolute. I think that uh, politicians do matter um, and that it is uh, not simply a plutocracy. If it was, Donald Trump would never have been elected. Um, he was an outsider candidate that did not. Um, I mean, he himself is a plutocrat, so you could appeal to that. But it's not that there is a shadowy cabal of of rich people who are secretly running everything 
all of the time. Um, if if there were, Trump would not have been elected. Um, on the other hand, look at what look at how the establishment freaked out when he was. Um, we, we I mean, things had already been bad um, during previous administrations, and we had basically a four year um, freak out on the part of a lot of people in the media and the political world because orange man bad. And um, and so, you know, I think there's an element of truth here. I think that politicians very frequently are in the pocket of big business, but not all the time. And so I think that there is some hope. Tom Carroll writes via email. Great show. I've been thinking of requesting a show on something like this. One aspect about which I'd be interested to know your thoughts is the morality of currency itself. Father Leo Fahey has some very specific things to say about currency, credit, banking, leverage, etc., and they're not positive. Maybe incorporate them into a future episode on a similar topic? Keep up the awesome work. Thank you. And I think it may not be Leo Fahey. I think it may be uh, William Fahey, but I'm not sure about that. In any event, um, the um, uh, I think that currency is moral. Uh, currency is a symbolic medium of exchange uh, for goods and services. There's nothing wrong with that. And so I I haven't read what Father Fahey may have said on the subject, but I don't think that currency is fundamentally immoral. Um, I'd have to know more about the shape of his thought to think to have opinions on it. But currency itself, I think, is is fundamentally moral. It's something that has existed for an enormous amount of time. And it has, uh, by making the exchange of goods and services uh, easier to do, it has promoted human flourishing and we aren't living in the Neolithic anymore. J.D. Georgius writes via email, I was very disappointed in this week's episode on inflation. Overall, I think that this issue falls short of the usual standards of mysterious world in two areas. One, it departs from the usual format of identifying a mystery, discussing the major theories, and then the evidence for and against the major theories. Thus, there is little to no discussion of the alternate theories of inflation. Two, I don't believe that a listener to this episode would come away realizing that Jimmy's views are arguably a minority view within the economist profession and certainly do not represent the consensus of economists working in the field today. Okay, so um, first I'll acknowledge that uh, we don't always use the same format on the show. Um, In the case of inflation, just getting the concept across what took so much um, time that the show was already running long and there was no way I would have time to go into. And here are all these other theories and now let's sort them all out. Um, I think the answer on inflation is actually quite straightforward. And so that's what we presented in terms of whether that's a minority view or not. um, Well, I don't know what economists you've been reading, but JD, but um, I did check prior, I mean, as part of to make sure that I wasn't just reading in a bubble, I did check. And among uh, other places, I went online to look up, okay, so what is inflation and what causes it? Um, Just as a as a self check to make sure I wasn't, you know, just reading to the wrong people or, you know, a narrow selection of people. Uh, One of the places I went was Investopedia. 
And Investopedia's article in, on inflation, which we have, will have a link to, notes that it can be caused by multiple things, but one way or another, they, they all involve too many dollars chasing too few goods. And uh, in particular, the article cites things like printing more money as, the, as one of the key causes. Eric Leyland writes via email, right now, with the dollar being the world's reserve currency for most countries, trillions of dollars are kept as reserves throughout the world, thereby removing them from circulation. We're starting to see a small move away from a reserve dollar with certain countries using non-inflationary assets, such as gold or Bitcoin, to back their own currencies instead. Reserve currency status, along with the dollar being the preferred currency used for international trade, has placed an incredible demand for the dollar over the last 70 years. If countries start to shed their reserve dollars or trade in alternative currencies, this could have disastrous inflation for the U.S. Do you see that as a reasonable danger? I see the uh, move away from the do- from the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency as having multiple uh, negative implications for the United States. It's something that um, would be harmful to the U.S., to U.S. interests in the world in a number of different ways. And frankly, it would harm other countries as well, because for all its flaws, the United States has managed to um, create an, an environment in the West with you know the cooperation of other countries that has promoted the economic development of the West and has provided stability as a platform in the West. Uh, it's not necessary that the U, that the U.S. dollar be a reserve currency, but moving away from that would create additional risks for people in other countries as well as for people in the United States. Um, and I hope our leaders don't screw things up so badly that uh, that that ends up happening. But we'll have to see. Nathan Valley writes via email, Jimmy, concerning the faith perspective on inflation, you stated. Any mismatch between the size of the money supply and the real economy will cause pain, and it's immoral to inflict pain on people. End quote. If we consider inflation as a sustained known phenomenon for which everyone has the opportunity to prepare, could we consider it an amoral condition? I'd also like to offer a critique concerning government control of the money supply. You stated multiple times that the government has control of the money supply, but I'll argue that's not true. While the Constitution gives the power of coining money to Congress, it does not restrict the creation of dollar-denominated liabilities. Through fractional reserve banking, banks create dollar-denominated liabilities, which we use as money. So, um, as we said in the episode, I pointed out that the government has farmed out some of its uh, money uh, coining abilities, and I've here today, I've talked about some of the reasons for that, but ultimately the government's in charge and the government can uh, reclaim if it chooses, it could reclaim its money uh, printing powers and not let anybody else do it. Uh, so I think that that even if the government farms out some of the money printing as a dodge or a boon or however you want to frame it, um, still the government is in charge. And that's the point I was making. In terms of the fact that inflation is a a known phenomenon that everyone can prepare for, well, um, that's true up to a point, but that's um, that's a very regressive 
uh, to, to use the term in the economic sense, that's a very regressive position because the people who are least able to prepare for inflation are people who are economically disadvantaged. And I have been one of those people in my life. Uh, when I was first married, I was so poor that I can remember going through the cushions of our couch to try to find enough coins to be able to afford a pack of hot dogs and a can of lemonade so my wife and I could have dinner. Um, and it's saying, well, this is, you know, inflation is known, um, you know, you need to prepare for it. Okay. Um, well that obviously one needs to try to do that, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt people who are in economic hardship. It still does. And it hurts them the most. So I wouldn't tend to view it as a moral. Also, uh, whether it's known or not, if you, um, if it, it destroys or de erodes people's savings. If you're trying to be responsible and you're trying to save for retirement and you're putting money in the bank and then inflation comes along and I mean, at any level, it's eroding the value of those savings unless you're able to somehow leverage them so that you can make a better, a higher than inflation rate on them. But then if you get these inflation shocks like we're having right now, that's evaporating the value of your retirement savings. And and that's something that could and should be avoided by the government. But they're not doing that. Now, if you're a super billionaire, all this doesn't matter to you. But if you're an ordinary person, it does. That's right. Uh, J Agent JSO9 writes on YouTube, this has become my favorite episode. Economics is complicated, but inflation is not. It is remarkably simple. I laughed out loud after listening to this, then checking the news. The first headline that came up was, federal government seeks to ease the burden of inflation through a new round of direct payments. When will we ever learn? Yeah, that's throwing gasoline on the fire. <laughs> Sean Kennedy writes on YouTube, I'm curious. Jimmy said that no one hoards money in the jelly bean analogy. That doesn't seem to be true in the real world. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, etc. seem very much to hoard money. If they weren't, they couldn't have billions of dollars on hand. How does that impact the economy? I think this is largely I think this, this is something that few people brought up. And I think that there may be a public misunderstanding on this issue. So um, when you put money in the bank, it I mean, it's like at the end of it, it's or in the middle of It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey is explaining how the building and loan works. And it's like, we don't have all your money right here. Um, yes, you've deposited the money in the bank, but the bank has used that to make loans and fund businesses and things like that. So when Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or um, Elon Musk or anybody else has a is said to have so much, so many millions or billions of dollars in cash, that doesn't mean it's like all in a vault somewhere. They're storing it in a bank and they're putting it in accounts that are going to make them money. Um, it, all, all it means to say they have this much in cash is that they haven't already invested it in like a single business that they own, but um, they've, they have it on, they have it you know, deposited in a bank in accounts that are going to make them money. And if the accounts are making them money, that means that money is being loaned out because that's the way banks make money is by is is principally by giving loans. And that's the way you make money if you, you know, have a if you have an interest bearing account in a bank. And so really that money is not being hoarded. 
it's it's liquid in that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk could draw it out uh, and you and invested in something like when Elon Musk, you know, has sought to buy Twitter. Um, but really, it is actually in use. It's not just sitting in a vault somewhere doing nothing. Yeah, I can imagine Jeff Bezos with a big Scrooge McDuck vault. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, him, him, sure. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, our next feedback comes from Rob L, who writes, it's interesting that in doing our 2021 taxes, we all were supposed to report to the IRS if we dealt in any cryptocurrency in the past year. Maybe cryptocurrency is going to be the new currency of the U.S., or is the government trying to get a pulse on if it must worry about it? I think right now the government is uh, still coming to terms with cryptocurrency, um, but it's noted that, hey, there's money over there and we want our share of that money. So, yeah, they, they want people to report it. In Massachusetts, you actually have to pay taxes on cryptocurrency uh, gains. So, yeah. Uh, and then our last bit of feedback on this episode comes from Enrique of the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas, who sent in this email. Hey, I've we've got someone actually from the Federal Reserve writing us. Cool. <laughs> That's right. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, I've been catching up on the latest episodes of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and was delighted to come across this one. I want to send you all my most sincere congratulations for the treatment you gave in the podcast to the problem of inflation. I think the presentation of the issue is balanced, thoughtful, and very well informed, as always. Listeners of the podcast will surely come out with a better understanding of what inflation is, why it is a problem, and what its root causes are. Educational outreach making economic concepts like inflation more understandable and clear for the general public is very welcome and much needed. So kudos for doing this. I definitely will be recommending the podcast to anyone that wants to understand and think more deeply about the causes and consequences of inflation. And thank you very much, Enrique. It's uh, great to hear from someone who actually works at the Federal Reserve and to have uh, such, uh, uh, such high praise for the episode. So thank you very much. And now we have feedback from our episode 200, Ghost Bride. And the first bit of feedback comes from Jim Burke on Facebook, who writes, I always look forward to the first episode of April each year. This one had a different feel to it compared to most of those, though. I was glad you said what you said near the end. That helped. Yeah, I wanted to for our April Fool's episode of the year, I wanted to do something different that would keep the audience guessing. And so glad you enjoyed it. And then Michael Carroll wrote on YouTube, I was sitting there listening to this going, I really don't see how this could be a joke because I know that this could have happened. Good to know I still have critical thinking skills. Well done, guys. Thank you, Michael, and glad you enjoyed it as well. Nicholas uh, uh, Jagno, I'm sorry, Nicholas, for doing that to you twice in this episode. You really ought to send me in a uh, uh, in, uh, pronunciation guide to your name if you send in more comments. Uh, anyway, Nicholas writes. Oh, Nicholas is a regular, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely send me a pronunciation guide anyone uh, do that I'll, I, so i won't butcher your name uh he writes jimmy this was the best script that you've done and with 200 episodes behind you there have been some really good ones but this one was truly entertaining like many people i was expecting the trick and a third of the way through i figured out that there was no trick it actually relieved some of the tension allowing me to simply enjoy the story which was expertly told thank you nicholas i do think actively about um 
about all the episodes, but including the April Fool's episodes. And uh, and I don't want to do the same thing all the time. So um, I have plans for future uh, future years and some of them will do things similar to what we've done in the past on April Fool's and some of them we're going to do other things. And I already have the script for next year's April Fool's half written. So I already know what it's going to be and what it's going to involve. And uh, all I can say at this point is it's going to be interesting. (laughs) No hints. Uh, Our next feedback comes from Nick Marzullo on YouTube, who writes, I clicked on the really disturbing video just to see if my guess about its contents was correct. I'm happy to report that it was perfectly accurate. Yes, the really disturbing video that that we link in the April Fool's episodes is is really disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> and then our last feedback comes from Anena Gaga 2001 on YouTube, who writes, great story. I thought the names Paul McLaren and BC McCartney were a tip off that this was a fake. Yeah, no, those were their real names. Um, Those were a couple of gentlemen in the Ghost Bride story who claimed to be mediums in order to uh, get uh, the main medium to confess to them. Um, But uh, no, those were their real names. They were just two guys from Ireland or Scotland. And um, and and they 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 were not the Beatles. No. (laughs) And as is often the case, the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. All right. So that's all the feedback. We would love to hear what your theories are about all the topics mentioned in this mysterious feedback. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, where there is a Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World channel. Or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. And Jimmy, do you want to say a bit about your YouTube channel where this uh, video will appear? Yeah. Um, so if people go to uh, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, and if you can watch the video version of this uh, podcast, um, we have a lot of, uh, we've really improved the uh, the video quality. We have a group called Oasis Studio 7 that's doing the video for us on almost all episodes. They're doing our weekly Friday episodes, though actually Dom gets credit for uh, doing the uh, the video this time. While you're at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, I am trying to grow my channel, so please be sure and subscribe and hit the bell notifications, and I'd really appreciate it. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines that we usually have, but not this time, in our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 212A. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>